Welcome to A New and Ancient Story, a show dedicated to the transformation of self and society. We're moving from the story of separation to a new story of interbeing. We explore it all technology, spirituality, agriculture, healing, economics, politics, ecology, relationships, education, because the changes that are gathering today will leave no aspect of our world untouched. For deeper engagement with these ideas, join our community at newandancientstory.net. Hello, everybody. Uh, Charles Eisenstein here once again. This time, um, you'll be joining us in conversation with Carol Bowman, who is a past life counselor, uh, especially um, specializing in children's past life memories. At least that's my impression. She's written two books um, about one of them was called Children's Past Lives. Is that right? That's right. And the other was um, Return right. from Heaven. Right. Yes. And so you've been doing this for decades. Yes, I have. <laughs> and it's just a fascinating topic that is, a, and I would say a provocative topic. Like I, I find that people's uh, emotional response to the idea of past lives is usually pretty intense one way or the other, mm-hmm. highly triggered and disparaging. And, you know, they'll accuse you of being woo-woo or, or irrational or something like that. Or other times, especially when you hear a past life story, it can, it can be like this really heart opening, almost like a feeling of, of homecoming and, and this cosmic sense of relief. So it can go both ways. Maybe I'll just start with, uh, what do you have to say about that? Well, I've, as you said, I've been doing this for decades now, and I would say when I first started, there would have been more of a woo-woo, twilight zone, humming response. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got that a lot. However, things have changed dramatically in the past mm-hmm. 25 years or so, and I think people are much more aware of the possibility of reincarnation, much more open to it than they were before. And since I started, my books have been out on the market for a long time. I've done a lot of TV and radio. And there's another group at the University of Virginia Medical School who's been researching children's past lives for Dr. Ian Stevenson started in the 60s and has published volumes on the topic. And he's produced a lot of very substantial evidence for the reality of these memories in children And when I started, Ian Stevenson's work was the foundation for what I was doing, but I had also at that point had experiences with past life therapy myself, which led me to become a past life therapist for adults. Mm -hmm. So when my five-year-old in 1988, we were living in Asheville, North Carolina, where you're living now, Uh my son got triggered by the sound of loud sounds of, of fireworks display in Asheville and I thought it was really odd and as as things developed as I asked him about his fear he gave a very detailed description of being an adult male soldier having died in battle and he had a lot of specific details which there were absolutely no way he could have known normally as this was happening I was shocked but at the same time since I had had my own experience with past life therapy I was very open to what he was experiencing and the upshot of his 
memory was that his phobia of loud sounds went away, as did a chronic eczema on his wrist, hmm. which seemed to be related to the memory he spoke of because he said he was a, turned out he was a black Civil War soldier and he had been injured on that wrist probably hours before he died behind a cannon. Can, can I um, yeah. break, break in on one point here? Yes. Um, it's almost a cliche to say uh, he knew things that he couldn't possibly have known. Mm-hmm. What it means. Mm-hmm. When I hear some actual details that gets underneath my intellectual defenses, mm-hmm. I have to say, I mean, I've read Ian Stevenson on an intellectual level. I'm kind of almost schizophrenic about this. Like I accept it intellectually, mm-hmm. but there's a little part of me that still denies the reality or even the possibility of these things and, and says, yeah, 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 that's all very interesting, but come on, Charles, you know what's really real. It's just the separate materially generated mind in this flesh robot. And when you die, it just ends and come on, face up to it. And, and so when I hear actual details that make me say, wow, that, that's really nourishing for me. And I wonder if you can offer, like, when, when your son, like, what, would, what did he say that made you really kind of blink in amazement? Well, a little background on Chase and our situation at that time. I was a stay-at-home mother. We had a very sheltered little community in Asheville at the time. He hadn't gone to school. His TV watching was restricted to Mr. Rogers and Sesame Street. Mm -hmm. And he had absolutely no exposure to war movies or anything about war. And in fact, this is an interesting detail in hindsight. He never asked for a toy gun. We probably would have given him one if he had asked for it. But fortunately, we didn't have to. He, He played with Legos and other building toys. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I had been a stay-at-home mom and I knew pretty much what he had been exposed to. And as I said, it was kind of a sheltered community. We had our little mother's group where the kids played. And Chase never played any war games. He was never interested in that. So when my five-year-old started talking about the life of a soldier in the first person, he was Mm -hmm. speaking of it present tense first person as he was remembering he said he was crouching behind a rock and he described the gun he was using which was actually a rifle with a sword at the end as he described it we know it's a bayonet yeah and he um he said i'm shooting everywhere i don't even know what i'm shooting at and even if he had seen a glorified version of war somehow what he was describing was from a very adult perspective perspective as if he was actually there and something an adult in battle would describe. It was not a glorified version of war. He said he was very scared and he was confused. And he said, there's smoke everywhere. I don't know who I'm even shooting at. And as this, as this was happening, I was getting goosebumps all over my body. I really had no idea what was going on at first, but then he said, I miss my wife and family. And this was the moment Even now, as I talk about it 28 years later, I still get goosebumps because that was the game changer for me. Wow. 
the person who was with us, well, there are two people with us when this was happening, my daughter who was nine at the time, Sarah, and a friend of mine who was a hypnotherapist who, did, who regressed me a year earlier, and I had amazing results from my regression experience. I had a, a, a healing of a chronic health problem. The hypnotherapist, Norman Ng, was sitting with us. He was visiting from Florida, working with a number of my friends from Asheville because they were so amazed at my physical recovery from my chronic lung problems as a result of the regression I did with Norman. Mm -hmm. So Norman was sitting with us and he picked up on what was happening with Chase. And he asked him very open-ended questions. Well, what happens next? What are you feeling? He kind of guided him through the memory. And Chase said, he was crouching behind the rock and he was shot in his wrist and he held his right wrist. And he said, they take me out of battle and they take me to a hospital, but it's not a regular hospital. It's these poles in the ground with something covering the poles. And he said, they put me on a bed, but it's not like a regular bed. It's a hard bench. Mm. And I was thinking, well, this is strange because Chase wasn't even born in a hospital. <laughs> yeah. So he was, he was a home birth. So he was describing this detail and it was very plausible. And then he said, I really don't want to be there shooting at everyone. I, you know, I didn't know what I was. He said something like, I didn't know what I signed up for. And he said, and then they make me go behind a cannon. And he said, at this point, he, he stopped and he opened his, he had his eyes closed as he was recalling this. So he was getting the visuals from some inner, inner imaging. And he just hopped off my lap and went to play with his Legos. Mm. And I really didn't know what to make of it. It was, he was probably talking about it for 10 or 15 minutes. And then he just hopped off and went to play. Norman, who was well-versed in past life therapy, said, well, he was probably remembering a past life. And the upshot of that was that within a couple of days, a chronic eczema he had had on his right wrist since he was a baby, which had not responded to any medical treatment. And we tried homeopathy, different salves, ointments, dietary change. Nothing had cleared that chronic eczema. Within a few days, it had completely disappeared. And we noticed that the next time he was around loud booming sounds, which had triggered his memory in the first place. And remember, he said, we later found out he died behind the cannon. His fear of loud sounds went away. In fact, he asked for his first drum set shortly yeah. thereafter. We kind of filed that away. And, you know, I was really amazed. And that really led me on a personal search, you know, just asking other parents if their kids have had past life memories, just within our small circle in Asheville. And around that time, we were moving to the Philadelphia area. And in the midst of the move, I had forgotten about it. I had more pressing matters. And Chase had started kindergarten up here, or first grade, rather. One day, we were eating breakfast, and he, we were alone. And he looked up at me and said, remember when I remembered being a soldier? And I, I was kind of shocked that he brought that up. And I said, yes. He said, well we spoke differently. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, I was black. <laughs> I said, uh -huh. oh, really? He said, yeah, I was a black soldier. Okay. That was the end of that. He started eating a cereal again. And coincidentally, I don't believe in coincidence really. That day in the Philadelphia Inquirer, there was a, an article black, about black civil war soldiers. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. I wonder if Chase had been in the Civil War, 
So I didn't say anything to him about it because I wanted to see what was coming up naturally for him and spontaneously. About a year later, it was 91 or 92, the first Iraq war. Mm-hmm. I picked up Chase from second grade and he got in the car and he said, I'm, I'm really upset about what's going on. I said, well, what's going on? He said, they're putting yellow ribbons all over the school. And he looked at me, the seven-year-old, and he said, Mom, they just don't understand what war is. And he said, I'm getting very upset. And I said, well, what's going on? He said, well, the memory's coming up again. So I took him home and I said, you know, just close your eyes and tell me what you're seeing. And he, he went into the same memory as he had when he was five, same detail, but a little... He added to that, he elaborated on the detail he had remembered when he was five, and he said that he was a black soldier. He said he was a free man, and I had no idea Chase would understand that. I said, well, what year is it, Chase? He said 1860-something. And he went on to describe what he had described before, but this time he said he had a wife and family. And I asked him some open-ended questions, and I asked him if he remembered anything about his life before the war. And he said he had two children. And he made pots. I don't understand what that meant exactly. Um, And he said he signed up. He said he had no idea what he was getting into at the time. He described the battle scene as he had before. And he said um, when he got to the part about the cannon where they made him go stand behind the cannon, he said, I pull a string. It looks like a string. Next thing I know, I'm floating above the battlefield. And this was a seven-year-old who had no idea about out-of-body experiences or near-death experiences or anything like that. And he described seeing the the battlefield from above. And he said, I was up for a while and I skipped other wars and I came back to a more peaceful time. Mm -hmm. So he was making the connection between having left that life and coming back into this life. And after that, the memory seemed to resolve completely. There was no emotion attached to it. He was never upset about it anymore as he had been when he was younger. I started, that really started my research of children's past lives. And I can go into another case now, which is even more filled with detail. But um, there's a little addendum to the story. After I had written the book and been on Oprah talking about Chase's memory, and, you know, it was all in print how his eczema had disappeared after he remembered it. He uh, studied film at Temple University in Philadelphia, and he came home one weekend, and he was scratching his wrist, and I said, Chase, what's going on? He said, my eczema is back, and my first reaction was, oh, crap, after you know, we were on Oprah and wrote the book, yeah. and I said, Your, his eczema had gone away. And I said, well, what's happening now, Chase? You know, what do you think is going on? He, he, he thought for a minute, and he said, you know, I just had to register for the draft for my student loans. So even the thought of being in the military started triggering a physical response, a somatic response in him. And then after that, it went away completely. And I can attest to the fact that now at 33, he hasn't had a recurrence of the eczema. It's interesting, though, because a lot of kids who have these memories tend to forget them. Yeah. Um, But in Chase's case, he still has the visual memory of the battlefield but he has no emotional attachment to the memory. Mm-hmm. And really, and to me, that's the crux of it. Ian Stevenson did a remarkable job of documenting at least 2,500 cases of spontaneous past life recall in children, but he never really addressed the question of healing. Right. 
And when I met him in 90, I think it was 98, I, I did some field investigations with him. I, I gave him some of my best cases to, uh, so I could go along on the investigations. And I asked him that in our first meeting, and he said, well, there's no evidence for it. Hmm. And I said, well, actually there is. And at that point, I could see that I was doing something completely different because of my own experience with, path, with past life therapy and with all the years of experience I had regressing adults who had profound healings from doing it. Yeah. You know, we, it's just a different approach. And to me, this is about healing. It's not just about trying to verify past life memories in children because Ian Stevenson has already done that and his successor, right. Jim, Jim Tucker, he's doing it in a slightly different fashion. So, Carol, let me, let me yeah. just give you some of, the, some of my thoughts here. Please. So starting with Ian Stevenson's work, which basically, like, like you, you, you could say, well, why is this so important? And obviously, if past life memories are authentic in some way, mm-hmm. then it's basically telling us that, our, that, that the guiding metaphysics of our culture is wrong and that reality uh, and the self and the world are different than we've been told. Absolutely. And that's pretty huge. It is huge. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and then, you know, you're taking it a step further to say this isn't just kind of an intellectual curiosity, kind of an armchair metaphysics and wow, isn't that cool? Yeah. Um, but it has a very direct practical application. And that's where my interest lies. I, mean, I guess I am just kind of intellectually fascinated by it. But I, you know, I've spent my adult life basically exploring the question, what is the origin of the wrongness in the world hmm. we perceive and, and experience? Why, why the ecocide? Why the genocide? Why the, the injustice, the poverty, uh, the degradation? Why are all these things happening? And I, and I dug down to the level of mythology and story, the story we tell ourselves about who we are, why we're here, the way the world works. And I believe that because our crisis has roots all the way down to that level, that therefore the healing or the solution or the revolution also must go down to that level. And that activism on a more superficial level, it's not that it's useless, conventional social and political and environmental activism, it's not that it's useless, but it doesn't reach deep enough to address the root of the crisis that we're in. And one way that I conceive of what I'm here to do is to make the bridge, draw the connection between practical work to change the world and the kind of investigation that you're engaged in. Like, I feel like it has really important and direct social and political implications. I mean, just, just, you know, hearing the the story, I feel the sense of satisfaction, like, yeah, I wasn't imagining things Mm -hmm. are connected in mysterious and profound ways. Mm -hmm. Everything that I do has, has consequences that are beyond, that are inconceivable, you know, because, so for example, if your son's experience as a civil war soldier influences his life today, mm-hmm. that means that every interaction that I have with another person 
or with any being probably, has effects that could pop up 100 years or 200 years from now. That's right. There's a very practical application to the concept of karma. Yeah. So it's not, you know, in the West we have this idea, I don't know where it came from, uh, based on Hammurabi's code, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Mm -hmm. If we do something bad in a previous life, we will suffer in kind in another life, and that's not accurate at all. It's much more complex. Yes. And it's actually much more beautiful because from a multiple life paradigm, I, I believe we experience almost everything as experiencing all different aspects of the human condition, which means we've been perpetrators, we've been victims, and we'll keep going through this cycle of incarnations until we transcend or become enlightened, whatever that means. But I think it's about, you know, going back, going back or going out to the uh, cosmic state. It's all about balance and energy and emotions are based in energy. So, you know, we can take the personal human experience through multiple lifetimes. And when you understand that, and when you can see some of our some of your lifetimes, I can see some of my lifetimes, I begin to see patterns in the lives. You know, what, what am I here to learn? What am I here to, to put into practice? What have I learned that can be put into practice to make the work better or to make myself a better person, to be more caring or compassionate? Then there's a practical application for all of this, but it, it goes beyond the, the personal into the cosmic too. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, we're all part of the cosmic order, aren't we? Yeah, you know, I think that I've played with different interpretations of past life memories. Um, one of them is kind of the naive interpretation that who I am is the soul that inhabits one body in one lifetime after another. Mm-hmm. On some level, we know that we're not a bunch of separate souls. That yeah. Right. Each one of us is perhaps, you know, a node in a holographic matrix that mm-hmm. that reflects and mirrors everybody and every right. soul. We're not really separate. Right. From that perspective, you know, I could I could say, okay, if I'm having some kind of like your son, Chase, you know, if he's having an experiential identity with a Civil War soldier, mm-hmm. does that mean he in some sense quote, was that soldier? Or is there another way to look at it would be that there is an intimate connection that's been forged between being in that life from that perspective and being in his current life and perspective. And Yeah, I know what you're saying. There, well, it's just experience. He experienced that life of his soldier which led him to this life as understanding what war is and not wanting to go back to that situation. And he, he's actually, I don't know how to describe it. I, I think it's evolutionary, <laughs> hopefully. You yeah. know, we learn. I'm not, it, obviously, his soul didn't have to do that this time. He's an artist in this life. He's having the, another experience of manifesting life in a different way. Mm-hmm. But I think that there's a direct 
correlation between his awful experiences, horrific experiences as a soldier, and not wanting to do that again, mm-hmm. which showed up early in his childhood, which in which he was not doing what you know we consider normal boy things, more normal boy play and being a soldier playing with toy guns. He was onto something else in this life. So these are all experiences, but we are part of, we are one. You know, if you take it to the base level, we're all one. We're facets of the divine or however you want to describe it. And if this part of the divine consciousness is moving in a certain direction, it's going to have effect on the whole. And I think that's what it's about is in the bodhisattva concept, enlightened beings choose to come back to help others mm-hmm. achieve enlightenment. And I think that in a way we're all, we can all be that. And that as we grow and evolve, it, it's working in the, in the mass consciousness. Yeah. So it's, it's all for, it's all towards a purpose. It's not, we're not just random molecules. I think there is some, I hate to use the word intelligent design here, (laughs) you know, in a real sense that there is some balance in the universe. And I think we're striving towards that and all these individual experiences on planet earth. And this is just one pit stop in the universe. As far as I'm concerned, this seems to be the planet of emotions. Mm -hmm. And that's all I, that's what I've learned from doing this work for these years. It's all about emotion and transforming the negative emotions. Mm -hmm. And that's the alchemy when you change the anger and the, the sadness and the hatred and all those things they lead to, then we're creating something different. The energy changes, it shifts and it, it can change on a mass scale too. Sometimes it looks looking back over history, it looks like we kind of created this whole historical timeline as this laboratory Mm-hmm. We can experience the most extreme <laughs> of all of these negative emotions. Like, let's create conditions where the most extreme hatred is generated, the most extreme anger, because we need to explore these far reaches of alienation and separation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then perhaps through the, the reincarnation, you know, having experienced that, then we come back no longer needing to experience that just as you're saying. Right, no right. That's right. And I am, you know, I'm running into so many young people now who just have, they carry this light and this wisdom. Mm-hmm. And I don't know where it comes from. It could perhaps come from the fact that they've already experienced all these other, all these learnings. I think uh, so. They don't want, or, or perhaps it's just a, a field that is strong in some places, like here in Asheville, it's, it's quite strong. Perhaps that's why these, perhaps these kinds of experiences are more accessible in a place like this, because the, the field of memory and of acceptance is stronger here. I don't know. I, I, you know, I would have said that if I were still living in Asheville, but having moved from Asheville, I would say it's everywhere. Uh-huh. I'm in touch with people all around the world. Um, yeah who are doing this kind of work or whose children are having past life memories. And I find it's happening everywhere. It's happening in Turkey. It's happening in who knows where, you know, it's, it's, it's universal. And, and, and I think 
what we see on a personal level, you know, I had memories of World War II and they, it was horrific. That was the cause of my lung problems. I died in a gas chamber in a concentration camp. Hmm. And see, I started getting a little choked up even talking about it. But I think that was being leveled. I was being leveled. Everything about me on a human, in a human way was dehumanized. It was, you know, it was light and dark. It was just extreme, extreme behaviors. You could say that about the 30s or the 40s during yeah. World War II. That was horrific. That was the time of great contrast. And it's all about contrast. So, so Carol, would you say that, that in this lifetime you have a special sensitivity and repulsion toward any kind of dehumanization? A- absolutely. No question. Mm-hmm. Any kind of injustice. Mm-hmm any kind of unfairness or any kind of prejudice it just pushes all of my buttons. And I know why <laughs> I know what I experienced last time. So I think we have those experiences. We learn through contrast, you know, just as there's contrast in, on a universal level, you know, the yin and the yang, the light and the dark, however you want to express it. We learn on a personal level too. And we, what I've seen working with the adults when I, can see a series of past lives is that we can have lives of victimization, but just as surely as we have lives of victimization, we've had lives as perpetrators because that's how we achieve balance. Mm -hmm. There's balance through learning or William Blake said, there's no contrary. No, there's no progression without contraries. Mm. Blake was a mystic. I don't know how his came about, but anyway, yeah, I think it's all for a purpose, and I think the kids coming in now are needed <laughs> at this time because of what's happening in the environment, what's happening on the political stage, the, this disparity in wealth, just all kinds of crazy things, all kinds of crazy contrast is occurring right now. And I think that I have a very positive outlook of everything, even I think going back to why I think these past life memories are significant and Ian Stevens work is significant is that, and other people have said this too. I heard Robert Thurman recently in a talk say this, that the best evidence yet for the continuation of consciousness is the children past the children's past lives that can be validated and there are plenty of them. And, you know, if, if life, continues after death and a a part of our personal consciousness continues after death. To me, that's very hopeful that no matter what happens, even physical death, even, you know, big transformation on the planet, consciousness survives in some form. I mean, that's pretty doom and gloom, but it's the truth. You know, Carol, one thing that, I've noticed not just with past life research, but with all kinds of psi research, uh-huh. into the paranormal, parapsychology, and so on. The evidence out there is, when you really look at it impartially, the evidence is pretty overpowering. Yeah, you know, it is. You if you look at it, and that's yeah. the key. You can't, you can't you know, read Ian Stevenson's work. And I mean, you can, if you really actually read it, most of the, most of the people who dismiss it haven't actually sat down and read it. Exactly. And, and when you actually read it and, and with an open mind, it's pretty compelling. Yeah. Yet, the 
scientific consensus today, decades later, is still that these are not authentic phenomena. Well, good for them. So, <laughs> you know. I'm going somewhere with this. I'm going somewhere. Yeah. yeah. So sometimes I notice that, that at least a certain segment, and this is changing now, but for a okay. long time, a certain segment of the psi research community responded to that by saying, okay, well, if you're not convinced by the evidence, let's produce even more evidence. Mm -hmm. That will surely convince you even mm -hmm. better evidence. Mm -hmm. Let's respond to your criticisms, specious though they may be, mm -hmm. of our experimental method and make even more rigorous experiments and so on and so forth. Hoping, and this is kind of a universal pattern of we human beings, that if what you're doing doesn't work, do even more of it. Yeah. Which is also a definition for, of insanity. <laughs> and, and the thing is, and then speaking from my inner skeptic, no amount of evidence is enough. Because what I want isn't to be found in evidence. Mm -hmm. What I want is to let go. Of, and, of what? Of fear, control, toleration. Mm -hmm. And I'm hoping that if there is absolutely certain evidence, then I will know that it's okay to let go. I won't have to do it as an act of faith and courage. Mm -hmm. I'm afraid it doesn't work that way. Mm -hmm. And so that brings me to the uh, question, if not evidence, then what does, what has to happen to somebody for them to accept the reality of these? And, and looking in myself, you know, it's, it's, there's some other change that happens in my life that brings me to let go. And it has nothing to do with the scientific method or empirical research. Something happens to me. It could even be, and I think this might be true generally, there's an accident or an illness, mm -hmm. or death of a loved one or a close brush with death or you know, some personal experience that opens people, usually involving loss of some sort, that opens people to a larger experience and that, that kind of obliterates the pretense that they can uh, stay in control of life and manage all the variables be secure in that way. There's something that, that shakes people loose and opens them up. And when that happens, the evidence that was once insufficient becomes almost unnecessary because they're predisposed to believe these stories and to let these stories in. And I think that as, our, as the structures of our civilization, the economic structures, the political structures, as these fall apart, as the story stops working for people, as they have health crises, for example, that the doctor can't fix, as they lose their jobs, as their, their you know, teenage children drop out of school. I mean, as all of these things happen that, that, they're, that make their efforts to hold on to the old reality become futile, then each one of the experiences is an invitation to open up to a larger reality and a larger experience of, of self. Mm -hmm. So I think the tide of the times is pushing 
us toward the expanded worldview that is inherent in what you're talking about. I would agree. And our conditioning is so strong. Yeah. I mean, just, you know, we're taught that these things don't exist. Well, in Western culture. Or do you have young children, Charles? Yeah, I've, I've, um, some of them aren't so young anymore, but I do have a, a three-year-old. Okay, well, that's actually the prime age for remembering. I'd say if your three-year-old started talking about in the first person uh, saying, you know, before I was here, I had a wife, a husband, and, and I had children, and we all died in a fire, uh, you would pay attention. Yeah. It would start shaking you out of your one life paradigm very quickly. I was hoping that would happen with my other kids. I mean, this is my fourth, but it never did. Oh, oh okay. Well, disappointed. Actually, they don't have to talk about it. Sometimes past life experiences bleed through as behaviors, as phobias, mm-hmm. as unlearned talents and abilities. It's not always yeah. through trauma, but we would notice that more easily. Or if a child, a three-year-old starts talking about when they died before, we would notice that. But the clues are there in our current personalities and lives, what we're drawn to, what our interests are. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's more than just making statements about a previous life. Right. Carol, was there, is there a story that comes to mind in your, you know, in your research that was especially moving to you or mm-hmm. amazing there, to you? Yeah, there are two <laughs> that are particularly amazing. And well, one you can view online. In 2001, I think it was, I got an email from a mother in Louisiana who said her two-year-old was waking up every night with terrible nightmares, screaming and thrashing around. And he keeps saying his plane is crashing. Oh, yes, I've heard this one. The James Leininger case. Yeah. And she contacted me because her mother had found my book, Children's Past Lives, in a bookstore and told the mother, Andrea, that, you know, maybe this James could be having a past life memory. So she got the book and she contacted me and I coached her a little bit. And I told her, you know, just, it's very possible. It is past life memory. Just engage him in conversation. Use open-ended question. Ask him what happened. Because children need to express these memories if they're coming up spontaneously. So she started talking to him about it. And she would say, can you tell me about what happened when your plane crashed? And he kept saying, little man can't get out. She was comforting and she engaged him in conversation. And she noticed that after she started entering his reality and talking about it, the nightmares went from five times a week down to one every two weeks. Mm-hmm. And during this period, he was about two and a half at the time. He would start talking about airplanes. He was totally obsessed with airplanes and he would, tell Andrea things about airplanes, about all the toy airplanes that he had, uh, things that she didn't know about planes. Like one point he saw a little toy airplane in a, a, a store and he demanded it. And she, at this point she knew she had to get it or else he wouldn't let up. He's, she said, oh, there's a bomb underneath the plane. And he said, no, that's a drop tank. <laughs> so, you know, he, he just knew things. Yeah. So uh, Andrea's husband, Bruce, was pretty kind of very, uh, how shall I say it, uh, very Christian. Yeah. Kind of, you know, very fundamentalist Christian. And he 
would not accept the possibility that James was having a past life memory. So anytime James would say anything about his life as a pilot, he said he, he was on a plane and he said the plane crashed. Bruce would try to deny it. But then he start, James started giving very specific details. Andrea asked him, well, where did your plane take off from? And he said, a boat. And she said, do you remember the name of the boat? And he said, Natoma. And she said, do you remember any of your friends? And he said, yeah, Jack Larson. And he, she said, well, what was your name? And he said, James. So his name is James in this life. So that, you know, it was score one for Bruce, uh, you know, yeah. on that, that, you know, he's probably making this up. But then Bruce got very curious and he started doing an internet search and found out there was an aircraft carrier in World War II called the Natoma Bay. And there was a Jack Larson on the Natoma Bay. So Bruce went to a couple of reunions of the survivors of the Natoma Bay, didn't tell him exactly why he was interested in the boat or the crew, but he later found out there was someone who died in the way that young James described um, over Iwo Jima. Mm -hmm. His name was, was James Houston, so he was a James. And what was remarkable about this case as it developed was that he had such vivid recall of specific names and places, and he remembered his life before he was a pilot. It turned out that James Houston, the, the man he remembered, died at the age of 21 over Iwo Jima. He, he was shot down by the Japanese. In the course of the research, James and Andrea found that, uh, Bruce and Andrea found that James Houston, the pilot, had a surviving sister in California who was in her 80s. Mm. <laughs> they had to conceal what they were really doing because they didn't want to shock anyone. Yeah. So, so Bruce said he was writing a book about the Natoma Bay, that he was mm. interested in history. So they interviewed this woman, Anne Barron, and James would tell them things about his life as before the war, and she was able to corroborate everything little James said. They were doing it in a sneaky fashion, because yeah. at that point they hadn't told her that they believed their son was their, her brother who had died. Yeah. But um, at that point, a couple of years after she contacted me, uh, a, uh, ABC contacted me, uh, ABC Primetime. Yeah. And, and they did a, a, a really great segment on the case. And right before it aired, I said to Andrew, you know, you have to call Ann Barron and tell her what's going on because she or any family members see the TV program. She's going to have a yeah. heart attack. So they, they did actually get together with her, and James met her, and he was delighted to meet her. He oh. James actually met the guys from the Datoma Bay, and they were oh. all very open to this, surprisingly. Yeah. You know, that was, yeah. you know it was, everything was in place, let's put it that way, for a spectacular corroboration. Yeah. So that's one of the better cases, and um, they wrote a book called Soul Survivor, S-O-U-L, Survivor, mm. I wrote the foreword for the book and put it into context that, yes, many kids have these memories. This was an unusual case because James remembered so much. I remember like some detail where, where he was like taken to an airplane museum and he's like, oh, yeah. you know, this B-24 is mislabeled. It's actually yeah. this. Yeah, it just got freakier and freakier, yeah. much to Bruce's chagrin. But yeah. then I... I I thought it was very funny. Within a few years, he became kind of a reincarnation expert. <laughs> you know, when I talked to him, he was like totally on board with it. Even we just, more, we just don't know, do we? No, we have no idea. Yeah. And what are we missing? You know, yeah. by not asking or engaging these kids in conversation, dismissing these memories as fantasy. 
an even more interesting case in my mind came up. Um, I've had a, a forum. It's called Past Life Forum, and it's been up since 97, 1997, mm -hmm. when my first book came out. And I have literally hundreds of cases. People, have, people whose children have these memories are searching for help. They want to know that their kid isn't psychotic. Mm -hmm. And they need help and you know, how do you talk to a child who's having a memory, especially a traumatic memory? And there was one woman who posted, I think she, it was like, I'm trying to think, her son was born, I think, in 2003. So when he was about three, she posted on the for him, forum that her little boy, they lived in California, they live in California, I can't use names, but he was obsessed with anything have to, having to do with firefighting. Mm -hmm. and he would go on a preschool field trip to the local firehouse, and they would come up to her and say, your husband's a firefighter, right? And she said no, and they, they're totally shocked because he knows everything about firemen's terminology, about how to operate the equipment, and when he was potty trained, he asked for a little fireman's outfit, and she got him one of, I guess they had a little belt with the, the gear a fireman would carry, Mm -hmm. They would take out the axe and pretend to break down a wall in their house. And he arranged his room, he called it his firehouse, and he would arrange things very meticulously that had to do with firefighting. And when he was about three, his mother was reading a Curious George book. And on the cover was an outline of the Manhattan skyline with the Twin Towers. Uh -huh. And when he saw that, he got very upset. And he pointed to the Twin Towers and he said, why did the men knock them down? And she had no idea how he could be referencing that. Uh -huh. he, at that. From that point on, he started getting upset, telling her, I couldn't get the people out. I couldn't get them out in time. And he told his mother that he had a fire truck and it was downtown. And he... he gave the number on the fire truck, the number of the fire company, and he talked about his friend Mike, who is a firefighter, and he described how he was in the building and couldn't get, get the people out. He was mm -hmm. totally obsessed with not being able to get the people out and very upset. And as it turned out, one of the people on my, one of the members of my forum was the assistant fire chief in a Connecticut community. Mm -hmm. And the mother wrote down every item that the, her son had said about firefighting and how to use the ladders and the buckets and the levers you pushed. And so we were able to get corroboration that he actually knew mm -hmm. all the details of firefighting. As it turned out, she, I, t I advised her not to post too much because people would jump in and want to find out who her son was in a previous life. Mm -hmm. And um, we both did research and figured out who he was. And he was from a very religious Irish Catholic family on Long Island. We saw the obituaries. We saw all of the tributes that the family posted online. And we agreed that this, it wouldn't be a good idea to contact this family. Yeah. In a way, it's a shame because it's the best case I've seen. Mm -hmm. Not only for the detail because of the poignancy of the case, this child was very sad because he couldn't save others. Mm -hmm. And she said he's a very sensitive little boy. He helps other children all the time. So my interpretation is he, the altruism he developed in that life and through his death translated into this life.
into his present personality. So this is, you know, a cause for optimism and hope for our civilization because could it be that the horrors of the past are now predisposing us to be more empathic? Yes. Take care of each other in the future. Well, I th- absolutely can go that way or some souls can get stuck in a cycle of violence or, mm-hmm. you know, it could go any way. But in this case, obviously that, that fire moon was altruistic by nature. Yeah. And he died the good death. You know, he died thinking of others, not of himself. Mm-hmm. And he came back to a very loving family in California to a mother who's actually a pediatric nurse who's very sensitive to children and yeah. is giving him the kind of love and support he needs and is allowing him to talk about his past life. It was really interesting because they finally took him to New York City around the age of, I think he was eight. Mm-hmm. And I think he was born in 2003, so it was very soon after 9-11. And they were going over the, the um, not the Bear Mountain Bridge, the uh, George Washington Bridge from New Jersey. Yeah. And as they were going over the bridge, he said he had this kind of dreamy look on his face. He said, I remember this. <laughs> they didn't go downtown. She just, she, the mother wasn't ready to do this. And, you know, the thought of going near the firehouse and having a big reaction from him. Mm-hmm was not anything she was ready to handle. And, you know, we both fantasized about going to the firehouse and asking questions. But this tragedy was so big and so still so raw mm-hmm. that we felt it would do, it would be a disservice to disrupt their belief systems in this way. Mm-hmm. If, if by some chance somebody saw the case posted on the forum and knew the family and contacted the family. We decided let it be that way, not through us. Right. Because it could be also seen as exploitive. Mm-hmm. And I did not want to share it with anyone else um, who this child was because I, I just, you know, if it had been, if he had remembered a life from 1945 or 1941 or from the civil war, that's one thing, but safely this, in the past. Yeah, Exactly. But the surviving family is coping with this the yeah. best they can, and they believe that their loved one is in heaven watching over them. And that could be true too. Like these these realities can coexist. Exactly. You know, like like exactly. Kind of the uh, the cliche is oh everybody thinks they have a past life as Napoleon or Cleopatra or something like that. And ironically, it could be possible that that especially like these kind of occupants of powerful archetypes. These right. Archetypal personalities. Right. Um, it could be actually really possible that many people have past life memories of the same person. You know, once you let go of it being a single soul that transmigrated uh-huh. from one body to another, you could have not only past lives, but future lives and concurrent lives. And I could be reincarnated as you, you know, you could be reincarnated as me. Actually, it, I think it's more personal than that. That's what's kind of intriguing about that. I think, you know, I, I entertained that idea for a while mm-hmm. and then I, somebody sent me their book about concurrent lives about mm-hmm. on some level, it doesn't make any sense to me because if there's, it just makes more sense to follow one, one arc, one story yeah. arc, not to say it, it can happen that way, but I, I don't really buy it at this point. Well, Although, 
I mean, it depends, on, it depends on how, how strongly we uh, adhere to linear time. If time isn't linear, then it could still be a story arc. That's right, and I, I, I agree with that, but for the sake of learning, <laughs> you know, it seems like we, we perceive in linear time, and if we can perceive this in learn, linear time and learn something, that's good. But I don't know. You know, I, I, do. yeah. I, don't, I don't know, Charles. I really don't. Have you ever had those, have one of those moments where you look into somebody's eyes and you have that feeling that you're both the same being, looking out of different eyes, but the same being? Yes. In altered states, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Many times. When, when you see we're one. Yeah. The, when you see the oneness in, in us all. But then we are working this through somehow in an individual body. And I, you know, why? Is it for the entertain for our own entertainment? I don't know. What is the purpose? Are we hybrids, you know, from yeah. other dimensions? And you know, what's the point? I don't know. Well, I've got I've got a couple more. I don't know if I could call them more mundane questions, but sure, slightly more um, <laughs> down to earth. <laughs> yeah, one thing I've noticed um, in the three stories that you've told, all of them were reincarnated from somebody from our own culture. Right. Is that normal? I mean. You know, 3,000 people died in 9-11, but, yeah. you know, that same year, hundreds of thousands or millions of people died violently around the world. Right. I mean, 9-11 was actually a drop in the bucket compared to what was going on in Iraq. You know? Oh, I agree. It depends. I think my second book is about reincarnation in the same family. Uh -huh. So in that book, I had to address the question of, is there choice? Because if we can reincarnate in the same family within a short period of time, there has to be some pull or some choice. There has to be some magnetism there. Um, and I know in Dr. Stevenson's work, he found that quite often people would reincarnate or, or drawn to particular geographic areas, either because they died there or they had family there and they wanted to continue with that mm -hmm. group. But... I have a lot of people in the adult regressions that I've seen who have been from other cultures. And I work with a lot of people from different countries who we can reincarnate anywhere. So you might say that it's a, a tendency, but not a rule that people. Right. Often, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We've only been here, what, a few hundred years Europeans have been here. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people remember native American lives and Egyptian lives, but when you think about it, you know, five, six thousand years ago, uh, all the action was not necessarily in Europe, but no. you know, there was a, there were civilizations in Egypt. So, yeah, it, it's a fair guess that most of us have had lives in Egypt or in the Middle East or, or China and India. I mean, geez, right, right. I mean, do you know what year the population of China reached the current U.S. population? No. It was like 1790. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah. Uh, well, so here's another question. So kind of going the opposite direction now, <laughs> do, do you get like anything that is just like, wow, that's really weird. Like people that kind of push the boundaries of reality, like people having past life memories of you know, being from alien civilizations or yeah. kind of these para-historical mm -hmm. Atlantis, things like that, like stuff that, that 
<laughs> I don't know what to think of that. Okay, I have a great story about yeah. that. Um, when I first started practicing, this is, you know, about 25 years ago, a young man came to me. He was 19 years old. He had started meditating at 14. Mm. He was very evolved, shall we say. Mm -hmm. And he was majoring in fiber optic engineering at Drexel University. And he went back to what sounded like Atlantis. He was describing use of crystals and teleportation and all, you know, I thought, okay, did he read some sci-fi comics or some mm -hmm. books or books about Atlantis? He, he said he was working with crystals and I was trying to get an emotional take on that lifetime because it's really about the emotions. It's not about what we do or, you know, what we're, yeah. it's not about what we're doing. It's about the emotions, the thoughts, the emotions. And there was very little emotion. In fact, he said, we don't feel much. Hmm. And it, I thought that was interesting. And then um, there was, there was some more to that life. And I, I kind of wrote it off in my, you know, I was going along with it, but I was thinking, well, he must've read about Atlantis and, you know, mm -hmm. this is a good sci-fi story. Well, he was 19 at the time about, I think by the age of 24, he had developed a new kind of laser technology and he sold, he did, he started a company and he sold it for like $250 million. And of course, lasers use crystals. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so was that just imagination or was he tapping into a lifetime when he actually did this, which, and he brought the information forward and developed, you know, he was in his early twenties when he developed this new technology that's now used, I think in all um, laser eye surgery. Mm -hmm. And well, I've had cases where, parents have reported to me that their children, you know, remember other planes of existence. Mm -hmm. And I've had adults and, you know, I have to say myself included who remember being in other dimensions, you know, whether you want to call it other planetary existences mm -hmm. or other, <laughs> but you know, what are we doing here? Yeah. How we get to planet, you know, we're so much bigger than this. We're so much more than just, this encapsulated energy on planet earth you know there's something so, more going on so so these memories from let's say um non-human states of consciousness or states of being homo sapien yeah yeah that you know is a very different perspective to <laughs> and, it depends and, who you're talking to are you talking to the people who listen to Coast to Coast Radio with George Norrie or Art Bell or, you know, who read? Re, um. I'm just saying, like, like <laughs> you know, to, to look out on, on life and, and the universe from the perspective of an alien or an Atlantean or somebody who's yeah. in, a, in a different bardo, that would give you information that may not be accessible from human eyes. So do you ever... Okay. Uh, is that information somehow transferable? Like when, when someone accesses a memory from one of these different Bardo states, is that, does information that is useful to us come in through that? Wow. Well, I think we have to be open because, you know, we're so limited by our senses and our conditioning. Yes. There's so much more going on, as you know. I just feel like the times are changing so fast and that, the time for extraordinary, the extraordinary is here. Um, well, I think it's been here because I was a college student in Boston in 1968. Mm -hmm. 
And I would say that was quite extraordinary. And I think we all thought it was changing really fast then, but then it seemed to slow down. Well, that's one of the, yeah. I mean, I, I get that a lot when I speak, you know, people say like, there'll usually be like some bitter, bitter hippie, you know, who raises <laughs> and says, we thought this was happening in the 60s, you know, and how do you know that it's happening? <laughs> bitter hippie. Yeah. And I, I, just, I, say, I, just, I just know happy hippies, I gotta say. Well, what I, what I tell them is I say, <laughs> I say the people today, the young people today, have an advantage that you didn't have. Absolutely. And that advantage is that they're standing on your shoulders. Oh, yeah. And, and we stood on the shoulders of Alan Watts and mm -hmm. Algis Huxley. And, right. But, yeah. but the, hippies, the hippie generation was the first time that this erupted into mass consciousness. Yeah. And it right. generated the field that the transformational young people are now swimming in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, 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 I don't know. You know, I heard your Rupert Sheldrake um, podcast and yeah. I thought that was excellent. And, and when I wrote my book, I left a lot of things out because I didn't think every, the mother in Peoria was, right. could really handle it, you know, so that, because I'm a very grounded person. I've raised two very coping, well adults, you know, very strong adults. And, you know, I've, maintain this practice you know i'm very down to earth in a lot of ways but i also have this part of me that is just not down to earth at all yeah <laughs> maybe maybe before before we sign off the recorded part then maybe maybe you could deliver us some kind of distillation of what you've learned from some of these more out there experiences something that perhaps even without the background, it carries the ring of truth or perhaps something that just in this moment you feel would be beneficial to transmit. Well, I think what you've been talking about, you know, I totally agree with what you've been saying. And I think that our, our consciousness as limited by our senses is limited. But if, if we have those moments of lucidity, either through loss or trauma or psychoactive drugs or you know all these things that can open us to experience near-death experiences we see that we're so much more and you know we're just scratching the surface with our present brains our present consciousness and why can't there be other forms of life mm -hmm. the universe is vast so you know that's really all i have to say about that you know in a public sense it's you know we're not alone here so, you know, I'm just open. I, I don't know. I'm limited too, but I can tell you from what I saw or what I've seen is that um, we're more than our bodies. Consciousness exists outside of the physical body. And there's something of a personal consciousness that continues from life to life or incarnation to incarnation. And it, it's about learning. I think it's a benevolent process. I don't think it's a terrifying universe. I think it's an amazing, beautiful universe. Mm. And I, I think there is some kind of, I guess the only word I could think of would be intelligence behind all of this or design. Mm -hmm. it's, it's just not random molecules or atoms interacting. There's yeah. something more going on that it's kind of, cosmic glue that holds everything together you can call it what you will yeah well i don't know either but it sure is fun to explore it sure is my favorite thing to do really yeah and i'm really thankful that you gave me this opportunity to explore with you yeah it was fun
Yeah. So anyway, for those of you who missed it at the beginning, uh, this has been Charles Eisenstein in conversation with Carol Bowman. And you mentioned a forum and a website. How can people find out more? Okay, go to my website. It's carolbowman.com, C-A-R-O-L-B-O-W-M-A-N.com. And from there, you can um, register to go to the forum. It's free, but there's registration mm -hmm. required. So my moderators can control <laughs> yeah. the, the trolls or who, you know, people who don't have good intentions. And there are amazing cases on the forum. And the one that I mentioned about the, uh, the fireman who was killed mm -hmm. on 9-11, it's called 9-11 Baby. Mm -hmm. And the name of the poster, the woman who posted it, it goes by the name Baby R.N. She's a pediatric nurse, so uh -huh. it's Baby R.N. And I think it's about the third or fourth page in because it was the last post was a while ago. But there's some amazing stories. And you can just see the range of how these children remember, you know, from just a, maybe one remark to, you know, very unusual behavior or to an unlearned talent. It's, it's fascinating stuff. And it's, fascinating. And, you know, it's more amazing than fiction. Wow. Well, thank you so much for, uh, for sharing all this, taking the time to share with us. Well, it's been fun, Charles. This has been A New and Ancient Story with your host, me, Charles Eisenstein. This is entirely a gift-based podcast. By that, I mean I never market to subscribers or withhold premium content for a price or do affiliate marketing or have advertising on my site. None of that. Instead, I rely on supporters. If you would like to support this work, you can subscribe at newandancientstory.net for a small monthly amount. Uh, you can also subscribe for free. Either way, you will be notified automatically every time a new podcast episode comes out. At the same site, you can also find archived episodes along with my blog, which is also called A New and Ancient Story. The rest of my work, essays, articles, books, videos, recordings, things like that, are mostly on my other site, charleseisenstein.net. So thank you very much for listening. I'll be with you again next time.